going to be a great weekend. Next weekend, we've got over 100 people booked in uh, to our weekend away, students and 20s, and our alpha courses as well. It's going to be brilliant. I hope you guys uh, who are left, as it were, a faithful remnant here, have a great time too. Um, I wonder what would people say uh, your life is about? We uh, live at a time, we have uh, amazing opportunities, uh, like never before really, to tell everyone else what we think, what matters to us. Uh, We can share things, uh, we can uh, really demonstrate our lives in front of people. We have uh, amazing opportunities and connections uh, to do that. And so, what do you do with that? What if uh, your friends were to be asked, hey, what's that person's life all about? What would they answer? What would they say? What would be their observation based on all the things that you say and do and share and like and things like that? We're kind of thinking about that today. When I was 15, I wanted to be a journalist when I grew up. Uh, I liked writing. I quite liked the news. I thought I'd become a journalist. And so I applied for a fortnight's work experience at my local newspaper, which I'm sure you'll all have heard of, the Bedford Times and Citizen. Now, this was obviously a significant thing in my life. This was 1995. No one really had heard of the internet at this point. So the local newspaper was genuinely an important and well-read resource for people to find out things that were happening, what was going on in the world, or at least in Bedford and its surrounding towns and villages. And so I was very excited uh, to uh, be invited to spend two weeks uh, working for the Times and Citizen. Now, in retrospect, some of the things they asked me to do were clearly time-wasting devices. Because a 15-year-old kid came into their busy newsroom, and they were like, uh, hmm. Ah, hey, here's today, here's today all of today's national newspapers. Could you go through these for us? Really important role. We want to know if we've missed any of the local stories. Could you go through all these papers, please, and see if there's any mention of Bedford? And that was something I had to... I was like, of course, of course, I'll help out however I can. So she was going, of course there's no mention of Bedford in the national news. Why would there ever be any mention of Bedford in the national news? But I must have done some things all right, because they let me write some things and a couple of stories and things like that in the first week. And they must have gone okay, because in the second week, they said, we'd actually like for you to write a full-page story. And you'll even be able to get your name put in as a credit. I was very excited. What a great opportunity. Now, many of you here know that one of the most important issues of our day is cycle safety. (laughs) If you've just recently maybe caught up with cycle safety as a big thing, can I just tell you, in 1995, I was telling people about the importance of cycle safety for the Bedford Times and Citizen, a full-page story about how you could stay safe as a young cyclist in our town. And... Obviously, what I was really, really excited about was the fact that my name was in the paper. It was a whole-page story. It said, by Luke David Ice. They even spelt my name right. I mean, obviously, it's a rare treat for me that that happens. And and so, of course, I was really excited. I wanted to tell all my friends about it. And so I came into school after they published the newspaper. And I was like, guys, look what's happened. Look at this. Look at this story. Here's the whole page. Sadly... This did not have the impressive impact I was looking for. Not not because they didn't care about cycle safety, but because of the one other thing that was on the page. You see, you'll know this, particularly with local newspapers do this, but uh, nationals do this as well. They've they've just got little bits of space to fill here and there. And and so they just put in the one-line stories that someone said, you must report about this. And so they're like, oh, all right, one line, stick it in there. And they don't really care where they go. 
The one that was in, on my page was clearly not all that important, although to the people involved it must have been. But the trouble was its headline was very attention-grabbing. And so when I showed all my friends the page with my name and my big story about cycle safety, my best friend said, wow, did you write Cat is Shot? <laughs> because this was the other story on the page. Someone had taken an air rifle and attacked a local cat. <laughs> 20 years on, we are still friends. And whenever we talk about the news or about writing and things like that, he still brings up Cat is shot. <laughs> Christians have news to tell. Christians have news that must be broadcast. Sometimes uh, they get distracted. Sometimes the people they're trying to speak with don't really care. But they have great and important news to tell. And as we finish our series on Nehemiah that we've been looking at the last couple of months, I want us to see that this is the point of the story. And it's why we are here too that this news must be broadcast. Before we read from God's Word, we're going to be reading from Nehemiah 12 in just a little bit. I just want to uh, remind you uh, and get you up to speed uh, with the story itself and what's going on. So our setting is Jerusalem. Uh, it's the site of the Jewish temple, and therefore it is the centre of God's people's world at that time in the Old Testament. It helps your imagination to think about it. Uh, Jerusalem was a city uh, that uh, it's, it's kind of peak and the, the temple was on a hill. So geography, not unlike Edinburgh and the old town, in that you've got everything kind of focusing on, on this hill that people can see for miles and miles around. And then there's inhabitations around it that are protected uh, by a wall. Um, obviously, slightly different climates, uh, but nevertheless, slightly similar. And this is where God's people lived. They lived in the land, and Jerusalem was the center of it, and the temple was the center of Jerusalem. It's the key place, because uh, it's where God is amongst them. But this was all destroyed by the invading Babylonian army. And this wasn't just a, an accident of history. This was God's punishment of his people for continually uh, rebelling against him. They'd been doing it for centuries, and in the end, God was like, enough. This land needs a rest from you. And I need to show that I'm a holy God and I can't have this with me. And so the Babylonians sweep in and they take out thousands of God's people into exile. Then, uh, a few decades later, the land was rested and God was like, right, it's time to move this on again and to bring my people back. And so the Persians take over the Babylonians and the Persian foreign policy is different to the Babylonian foreign policy. Whereas Babylonians take everyone and bring them to where they are, the Persians say, go wherever is home for you and do whatever you like really, but just remember, we're in charge. And so the Jews are allowed to return home and rebuild. The book of Ezra, uh, which you'll find in the Old Testament just before Nehemiah, tells the story of how this began and how a new temple was built. And then Nehemiah takes up the tale. He hears that the temple is up and running, which is good news. But there's loads of terrible news as well, which is that Jerusalem itself remains in a desperate state. The walls are still rubble, and so therefore most of the city is in uninhabited ruins. And this just moves Nehemiah so strongly he feels he needs to go and fix this. It's, it's not one of those things like, isn't it a shame this is happening? If only someone would sort this out, he says, no, I've got to do this. His boss is the king of Persia. And so he says to him, will you let me go and do this? It's a high-risk uh, request, but the king says, yes, of course, because it's God's plan. When God wants something to happen, it's going to happen. So Nehemiah goes back, and there's a lot of opposition and a lot of hard work, but the wall is rebuilt. 
And so the city can begin to be repopulated, can start really all over again and be rebuilt. But more important than the city as a physical structure being rebuilt is God's people are coming to know again what it means to be his, to belong to him. And so after about Nehemiah 8, when the wall is finished, we then see what it's like for God's people to belong to him again, to commit themselves to him. And so we have chapters of them saying, what we've done in the past has been wrong. Lord, we want to recommit to you. We see that that means living in this way, like this, stop doing those things, begin doing these things, rediscover doing these things. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to be. And so it's this wonderful sense of this story all kind of coming uh, together. And then it really climaxes, for me anyway, in chapter 12. Because they've dedicated themselves, and now it's time for them to dedicate the walls of their city. And it's really them saying, look what God has done, look what is happening. And so here is what happens. Now, having recently complained about how my name is sometimes spelled, I'm clearly going to mispronounce some names on this list, but... The important thing is to just say them really fast. <laughs> so this one, Gerdi. Okay, so the city's rebuilt and the people are re-consecrated to God. And they're going to be his again. And so this is how they celebrate. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geber and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. It's Nehemiah writing in the first person. He's led all this. He says, Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall, and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall, to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshea, the leader of the uh, half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshelam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph. Asaph being one of the famous early songwriters of Israel. And his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melali, Gilali, Mei, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, who again, a great Israel songwriter. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the priests, Eliakim, Maaseiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elaniah, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with trumpets, and Maaseiah, Shemaiah, Elizah, Uzi, uh, Jehanahan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. 
and the sound of Jerusalem was heard far away. That is one of my favourite lines in the Bible. That last one. Not the names one, obviously, though that's important too. I just love that. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. It's quite cinematic. When I read it, I imagine myself some way outside of the city, kind of looking up, maybe seeing it silhouetted. Uh, I'm imagining it's at the sunset. It probably wasn't, but that's kind of what it feels like it should be like in my mind. And then you just hear this noise from within the city roll up from above the, above the walls and then down into the valleys and spread across the land. I live quite near the Hart Stadium, Tyne Castle. And sometimes you can hear the noise from the stadium. And often, over the last couple of years, it's been quite joyful. Uh, and it sometimes can just feel like that. You just hear this noise happening over there. And you're like, what is going on? Something good must be happening. So it's an evocative moment. But the power of this line is actually something much deeper than it just kind of sounds quite cool. Because it isn't just a happy ending. It is the story. And it's not just Nehemiah's story. It's God's story. And I want us just to know that again today. Because God's story is our story. And to know what God has called you to do and what he wants you to do and how he wants you to live, you need to know the story. And when you know it, you'll be able to respond. If we go back all the way to the very beginning, right at the start of the book, we hear of God making the earth and giving it to us to steward on his behalf. And he says to us, fill the earth and subdue it. And that means that us as human beings, we are uniquely God's image bearers. We are called to represent him wherever we are. That's what it is to actually be a human being. Whether you're a Christian or not this morning, you're made by God to represent him. And so he wants representatives of him to fill the earth. So that the whole earth is filled with people who are giving glory to him and are knowing him and delighting in him and rejoicing in him. That's what we were made to do. That is not what happens, though. Everyone turns their own way. Everyone does their own thing. Everyone rejects God and his goodness, and therefore death and chaos and separation come into the world. And that's what we are used to, and so that's what we think is normal, and is even how things are. It is how things are, it's not how things are meant to be. And God will not be thwarted in his original intent. And so he chooses an elderly couple who we know as Abraham and Sarah. And he says to them, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Just speaking to a couple of old people, he says, I'm going to make you into a nation such that through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that is a pattern that we're going to see happen again and again and again in the Bible. This is what God says. He says, I give my goodness to you that it might radiate out from you to others that they might see that I am God. That is what God wants to do. That's what he has called them to do. So Abraham and Sarah have a child miraculously. And from this little family, a nation grows, Israel. God gives them a land to live in that they might demonstrate to the rest of the world what it is like to know God and to follow him and to be his. And that the world might see that and think, that's amazing, we want that too. 
Everything that happens. So you read through the Old Testament narratives. The point is to fulfill this great promise in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what the first six books of the Old Testament describe, how it happens. And they also describe God saying, this is what it looks like. This is what it is for you to be a blessed people. Often people are like, oh man, they give you a whole load of rules, which I don't understand. Now God's saying, this is what it looks like when you're a blessed people. You live this way. But what we also see throughout the Old Testament is God's people not really doing this. They struggle with it. They seem to completely fail at it. They think that God's saying something else. They think it's all about themselves or or all sorts of other wrong things happen. But God still won't give up. And in fact, he keeps speaking and he reiterates and he redefines this promise. We see this happen a lot through the prophets. There are a whole load I could have chosen. I've just gone for this from Isaiah chapter 2. Again, think of the pattern that we're saying is being established. It shall come to pass, God says, in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." You see the pattern. God says, I am raising you up. I am blessing you that people might see and come to you that they might know me. He said, people are from all over the place. Have you heard what the God of Israel has done? Let's go there. Have you heard of the law of the God of Israel? It's amazing. Let's go there that we might see who he is and know him for ourselves. God does good to his people, the news of it goes out, the people come in that they might see and know this same God. As I said, you read through the Old Testament and you often see this not happening. But there are times when it does. Particularly through the reign of David and then Solomon, uh, which you can read in Kings and Chronicles. One example is in 1 Kings 10, the Queen of Sheba. That famous kind of name. Where is she from? She's from far away. And she comes because she has heard about King Solomon's greatness. And this is what she says when she investigates it for herself. She said, the report was true that I heard in my own land. The noise has gone out of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Another instance, Psalm 126, talks about a time when God restored the fortunes of his people. You read again through the Old Testament, up and down, up and down. Here's one of the, one of the after one of the ups, they write Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. You see what happens. That's what it's meant to be like. People hear and say, their God is great. Sadly, these are exceptions more than the rule. 
Israel fails in its vocation to declare God's glory to the earth. And that's what you read about through Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. And it's, it's quite hard reading sometimes. Like lots of people getting it wrong and occasionally them getting it right. And even Nehemiah, you'll have noticed, you know, this is the end of our Nehemiah series. You're like, man, you focused a lot on chapters 1 to 8. And now we're having one talk that's going to cover 9 to 13. And several reasons, facts of what we wanted to emphasize and things like that. But one of the things about Nehemiah, it just ends with really quite a high degree of ambivalence. Because the city has kind of been rebuilt and people are coming back, but they're still doing the things that before got them in trouble. Nehemiah just goes crazy, he can't believe it. How is this still happening after all God has done? But God will not be thwarted. He will do what he has set out to do. He makes promises about the fulfilment of the promise. Seems it's not good enough just to give them the promise. God has to say, I promise you, this promise is going to be fulfilled. And in fact, the way it's going to be fulfilled, God says, is that I am going to come and fulfill it. Because that's really the only way it's going to happen. Someone is going to come who will be fully identified with God. Because it's only God who can make this promise happen. But that person is also going to be fully identified with Israel. Because God said, through you, Israel, I am going to do this. So even when you can't do it, I'm still going to make it happen. And I'm still going to use you. Isaiah 49, again, just one instance of many. God says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God says, I'm sending someone who's going to do that. And so when Jesus says those famous words in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life Jesus is saying I have come to do it I have come to fulfill what was promised the blessing of God is Jesus Jesus comes amongst us we see God and people flock to him they gather to him they race to him and What he does to make us right with God is not say, if you're from this certain ethnic background, you're okay. Or even if you do these certain religious behaviours, you're okay. He says, if you trust in what I have done, you will be okay. You will be rescued. In other words, anyone from anywhere can be rescued by what Jesus does. Where you came from, what you have done is irrelevant. If you put your trust in Jesus, you will be saved. You will become part of God's people. Jesus does this. Jesus makes this happen. It's amazingly something that everyone rejects that is how he does this. The humiliation of the cross is is what brings this all about. The thing that makes, when he's actually the most rejected, he is winning our acceptance. God rejected him that we might not be rejected. God punished him that we might not be punished. And then God gives us his righteousness that we can run to him. We put our trust in him. Our sins are forgiven. All that separates us from God is taken away. We can come close. We don't just hear about this goodness. We see it and we experience it 
for ourselves. And Jesus, having achieved this, then calls his followers, this new Israel, as it were, this new people of God, to join his mission. And guess what the pattern is? I will bless you, that you will bless everyone, that they will come to God. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. The blessing of God comes, so go that they might come. And that's what happens. That's what we see happen in the book of Acts. If you uh, see the geography of Acts, it expands. It starts in Jerusalem, then it goes into the neighbouring region of Judea, then it goes into uh, the, the countries nearby of Samaria and places like that. Then it goes to the ends of the known world, which for those guys was Rome. And so there's that process, again, of expansion, because that's what happens when God blesses. And just one example, a, a city that previously was uh, the enemy of the Jews, Samaria. They hated the Samaritans. The gospel goes there. Jesus is preached. Jesus brings wonderful healings. People get saved. And what happens? There was much joy in that city. And that now is the pattern of God's action. It's no longer located in Jerusalem. It's everywhere where God's people go. And so we see throughout Acts, churches are formed wherever people put their trust in Jesus. They put their trust in Jesus and they declare what he's done, not just in Jerusalem, but in their lives. And they say, therefore, to other people, he's done it for us. He can do it for you. His death is enough to reconcile you to God. His resurrection will give you new life. His spirit will enable you to know God right now. And churches are formed that do this all over the place. And so Paul can say to the Thessalonians, Paul seems to have spent less than a fortnight with them. He went there, he preached the gospel. Some people loved it, lots of people hated it. He has to move on. But he hears what's happened. And he says to them, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, surrounding areas, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we, not need, we need not say anything. Paul says, you're doing exactly what God wanted you to do. The noise of God's blessing of you has gone out. And Paul, who is an expert in Judaism, sees this as the fulfilment of God's eternal, original promise and purpose. He says to the Ephesians, God was making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And he goes on to say, this mystery is that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says, look what God has done. This gospel is for everyone and they come together in Christ and therefore God is bringing all things together and all things will belong to him. And this noise goes everywhere. The nations are to be brought in that God might once again be all in all and Lord of all, just as he was at the beginning. And the earth will be filled with those who know and love God, just 
as he intended right from the start. And so this book ends actually, in a way, as it began. We get a revelation of what's to happen when Jesus brings about the end of this age as we know it. And John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And the story ends with a new city established, where all God's people are. And John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's what he's always been about. It's what he's always doing. He's blessing that people might come in and know him. We're so keenly aware at the moment of how nations need healing. This is how it happens. This is how it happens. God blesses people and the blessings go out from them that more people might come in to him. That's how he's doing it. And that's why I love Nehemiah 12, 43. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away It's not just poetic and cinematic, though it is. It is God's pattern at work that he is always doing. It is a fulfillment of prophecy, and it is a signpost to the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's plan in Christ, his church. This is what God is about. This is what God is doing. This is what he is calling you to be about and to do. It's why God rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. It's why God is building this church and many like it. It's why we are called to play our part in doing this. That is the story. That is what God wants for your life. I have so many people say, I'm not quite sure what God wants me to do. He wants you to do this. Because this is what he is doing. And everything else has to be put in that context under that plan, submitting to him, saying, you are Lord, what are you doing? I'm blessing everyone. I'm doing that through you, actually. It's going everywhere that everyone might come to me. So, how do we make a noise? How do we do that as God's people here and wherever you're going to go through this week? Well, from Nehemiah 12, I'd say we ought to rejoice. We ought to make a noise. Nehemiah gives us all that details about the worship service and all those names that were like, what is that? Why? You could have just said a bunch of people. Why the names? Because people matter to God and because joyful worship matters to God. And he wants you to see it and he wants you to experience it and know that it is going on. We are told by God to worship with joy and we are told that this is for mission. You think, well, it's great, we worship together sometimes, but what I've really got to do is go out and tell people about Jesus. What we have done this morning 
is totally in line with what God wants you to do. And is a missional moment. I appreciate that only maybe a few of our neighbours will have heard us. And whether or not they considered it a blessing, I'm not sure. But it's a statement. It's part of God's prophecy. We are filling the earth with joyful praise of his name that they might hear of him. And it's what he's called us to do. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he's done marvellous things. So he's blessed. So we make a noise. Then what happens? Describe some of it. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Therefore, next verse, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth break forth into joyous song and sing praises. It's the same pattern again. I sound like a broken record. I just want you to get it. God blesses them. The nations hear about it. Then what happens? The whole earth blesses God. The whole earth praises God because he's amazing. We have great news well worth singing about. Well worth making a tremendous noise about. That God has reconciled us to, to him in Christ. Not counting our sins against us, but instead counting his son's perfection to us and putting the punishment for our sins on Jesus on the cross. He has adopted us into his family. He is for us at all time. He has given us his powerful spirit, the presence of God with us right now. And he is preparing to make all things new, heavens and earth, that we might dwell with him in that place in joy forever. It's great news. (laughs) This news deserves all the breath in your lungs. It really does. It is so good and it is so ultimate that it trumps everything else happening. And this is, this is an important point. When you gather, when you come to Kings on a Sunday morning, you, you know, if this is your first time with us, we hope you're having a great time. You're like, man, this is loud. This is louder than I expected. We're kind of always like this. We're always going to be like this. Because all that I've just said is going to be true. And is still going to be true. And that deserves our praise and our joy. And that's what God's called us to do. And this doesn't mean we're ignoring things that are going on in the world. It doesn't mean that we don't weep with those who weep. The Bible says that's right. But there's something particularly about public worship. There are many ways in which you can connect with God many times, and you should. There's something about public worship that is right and fitting, that we declare his praise with joy. You know, we're led by the Spirit, and some different times, wonderful contributions we had this morning, they just kept raising our eyes and making us just love God. Sometimes it happens, God's like, I just need, I want you to focus on this, I want you to hear that. And so we respond to that. We're not just making a noise and plugging our ears up. We've got our eyes and our ears fully open. We know what's going on in the world. We know how awful so much of it is. But we say that God has the final word and that God remains good even with what's happening. And so we're going to praise him. Our preaching series in the new year is on Paul's letter to the Philippians. It is full of joy. He was a prisoner. He writes it as a prisoner full of joy. Now that's not a simple thing. There's more that we could say about that. 
was wrestling with this uh, just the last couple of weeks. It's just been hard time just kind of for us, uh, family stuff going on. It's been very complicated, difficult, hard, busy term. And, and then obviously there's just awful things happening. And I think when things are hard in your own life, it just, it, it just amplifies the awfulness around you as well, doesn't it? And you just, you're like, oh, this is just so bad. And I know because I, you know, I teach this stuff and I've lived with it for years and I'm convinced by it that my attitude should be one of praise and joy to God. And I'm thinking, but Lord, this is very hard. And I don't actually feel that joyful. And then I, I started reading a, a history book about the, the history of the Jews. And it just made it so much worse. Because I was just sensitive to this point. And then you're reading these awful things that have happened. This, this book finishes in 1492. I'd got more than I could take already. Including people who claimed to be Christians. Things that they did. And it was just, it, it was just too much. And there's this part of my head that says, you know that you're to rejoice in God. And you know that the end's coming and it's wonderful. But what's going on with this? And I was like, God, what is going on? I just read another story. It was just too much. God! I felt and whispered to me in that moment, my son. And that just set two thoughts in my head immediately. Jesus, God's son talked about him returning and how good that's going to be and how joyful that will be for us. It will. But he will return to make all things right. He returns as the judge. And there's something about that action of him returning and settling everything that will be so powerful and so great that even the evil that has done will be finished and answered. Now, I don't quite fully get how that's going to happen, but I know it's going to. Because Jesus has said, that's what he's coming back to do. And so I just felt God say, I am coming to finish all of this. I know this more than you do. Because he then said, my son, and I thought, I'm not going to tell God about suffering, am I? I'm not going to tell God about what's hard and what's not. Because he allowed his son to die on the cross for me and for everyone else. And so he just said that. It was a whispered moment. I just thought, that's so right. And then because I've tried to establish a pattern in my life where I read a psalm before I go to bed, I, I finished the book, put it down. So I managed to go, go to sleep. No, no, go and read a psalm. It's Psalm 95. And <laughs> Psalm 95 says, God's faithful in the morning and he's righteous at night. And it finishes by saying, there is no unrighteousness in him. None. And he will bring, again, it talks about punishment of those who do wicked and God's righteousness coming. And I felt him say again, you see? And then the next day, I'm just going through my uh, Twitter feed and someone had shared a link to a video that talks about simultaneous joy and suffering. It talks about, as a line in 1 Peter, talking about our salvation, the blessing of God come to, come to us. And Peter says, in this you now rejoice, right now. Although maybe for a while, You've endured grief. And God just said, yeah, actually those two things can exist together. And it's very hard and very complicated and it's difficult and it's why it's easier to kind of think either everything's bad or everything's great. You have to think and feel and experience to be in the middle of that. But I felt God say to me so clearly, just those three things, like I'm really going to make this clear to you, son, because you don't seem to get it otherwise. I'm reminding you. I mean, I knew it, but I needed to hear it anew. God's saying, rejoice. Rejoice. I'm still good. I'm still in charge. 
It will bring about an end to all things. That will make you <laughs> amazed. And so it's always right that we rejoice. It's always fitting that we make a joyful noise because he has blessed us. And also that is how people will hear about him and will come to know him. Final thing to do this is Nehemiah's other great concern. You see it again through these closing chapters. He's saying to the people, you, you can't live like that. You mustn't do that because you belong to God. You have to show the world that you belong to God. This really matters. Our behaviour doesn't affect us at all in terms of God's acceptance of us. He accepted us as sinful, foolish enemies. But to belong to God is to give him charge of your life. And you are showing him through how you live. And so Jesus takes the pattern that we've talked about this morning and says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. It's the same thing again. The blessing of God that changes us, that conforms us to the image of his Son. People see it and come to him. The friend of mine I mentioned at the beginning, with the, uh, who saw the cat is shot headline and talked about it to me ever since, he was the guy who invited me to a church like this. And um, he had become a good friend. And so when he said, why don't you come along? I said, all right. And not just because he was a good friend, but because he was, frankly, an astonishingly good guy. Uh, his dad had abandoned his mum, and he had cystic fibrosis, which is still awful, but back then just meant I didn't even know how long he would live. And yet he never swore, he never did any of the stupid things that the rest of us did. And yet there was life in him and joy and fun and friendship. And so when he said, come along, I said, okay. And I found it thoroughly weird and didn't go back for a year. But he kept being my friend. And he said again, why don't you come along again? I said, all right. And this time it just clicked. And then for... For a time I was with God and then for another time I really wasn't. Five years of just being a fool, doing things my own way. And of course it all went horribly wrong. And I thought, I'm in a complete mess. Where can I go? I went back to him. I was like, you need to help me out because this is not going right. He was the guy God used. I knew what he was about. And I knew that I needed that. And you are surrounded by people who need what God has given you and need to know that they can come to you. Not that you're perfect, but that you belong to God, that he has blessed you and filled you with joy, that you are doing your best to follow him and that they can come to you. Who could God bless through you? and through us. We can't do it by ourselves, 
But we can do it if you belong to God because he has given you himself, his spirit in us. Those who do great things for God are dependent on him. It's not that they're extraordinary. Nehemiah told us that himself. He said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's another reason we rejoice. God wants to work in us and through us. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And then he said, you're the light of the world. How does that happen? Because he comes and makes his life in us and works through us. And that's what he wants you to open yourself up to to do today. And that's how our life becomes all about him. And that's why we can't help telling other people. So let's pray. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. Maybe you want to close your eyes with everyone else. And you've heard briefly sketched out this good news. You don't need to get it all. You just need to know it's true. And I believe that God has done that for several people this morning. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to say, Lord Jesus, would you please come into my life? I've seen this blessing. I I need it. I want to give my life to you. I'll give you a moment to think about that and then I'm going to ask you to put your hand up so uh, I know who you are and we'll get to chat with you afterwards. We'll give you a Bible as well that you could uh, see who God is in there. We want to help you and help you work this out. This is a moment for you to consider. If you know you need to ask God for this great life, this great blessing, his salvation, his rescue, his forgiveness for the first time, just want you now to put your hand up as an act of saying to him, I need you, please come to me. Okay, let's the rest of us, just in our hearts, say, Lord, this is the way you do it, and I want to be involved in it. Lord, I pray your blessing on each person here, whether they know you or not, actually, but I pray for those who are your people, that they would be freshly filled with this fire, as Esme's picture talked about earlier that they would be stretching out, as Amos' reference to Isaiah spoke about. That we would go to the ends of the earth and to every street in this city. That this great place and this great land would be filled, filled with your glory. People blessed by you, that others might rush to you. Amen. Oh,